the journey to the stage. I'm Brian Frazier. If you could be so kind as to give a kind review, some stars, subscribe, or follow, it'd be so helpful as I continue to build an audience. This podcast explores the journey artists take to get where they are today, and we'll cover some new and upcoming works as well. This is episode number seven, and I'm happy to have as my guest, the one and only Michael Rowe. Mike is one of my favorite vocalists, songwriters, and guitar players, so I'm really happy to have him with me today. Mike is a founding member of the alternative rock band, The 77s, with quite an extensive catalog, and he's been a part of the supergroup, The Lost Dogs, sings with his pal, Derry Doherty, uh, in Kerosene Halo, as a solo artist, and has played bass on some tours of the choir. He's got quite an extensive career. So Michael, welcome to Journey to the Stage. Hi there. (laughs) (laughs) How's it going? How's life treating you? Uh, Could be worse. As a promoter, we've brought you to town a few times you and Derry a time or two and then with the choir but it's, it's we, been uh, a few years we've played in your in your kitchen yeah it was yes. in your kitchen right our, our yeah. dining room yeah we're right, right off yeah, our kitchen. those are very memorable uh, I can see the whole layout of the house and the bedroom <laughs> where we were hiding out uh <laughs> chomping down on a lot of food I don't know how we got it you may have put it back in there yeah it's been a while but um yes people have never been to a, a home show we clear out all the furniture and we can, we've had up to 65 people. So nice, intimate shows, but we've also had some with full blown plugged in too. When Dan Michaels was here on sax with the choir and Laracon and then you on bass. So yeah, we've, we've had some rocking shows here and some nice intimate ones with just you and Derry uh, doing acoustic stuff. Was that your house or another gentleman's house in the living room? I, I remember sort of a rectangular thing and we were sort of squashed in there. Yeah, that was actually a good friend of mine, Mark. Um, that was the first Kerosene Halo tour. Well, cool. Well, let's so let's rewind back. Let's go back in time a little bit to your youth. What made you initially want to pick up a guitar? That has two answers. One is my mother's first cousin, Richard, played electric guitar like Chet Atkins. He did that finger style Travis picking thing. Nice. And we had a lot of Chet Atkins records in the house when I was a kid. And I always liked those. And so occasionally uh, my mom would have him over for dinner. And then afterwards he would set up his electric and amp in the living room and proceed to give a little recital there. And, you know, it was jaw dropping to watch. Of course, another thing was that I was a sort of precocious rock and roll kid. My parents got their first hi-fi set. You remember that record High Infidelity by REO Speedwagon? Absolutely. had the A-track. Yeah, well, if you had the vinyl on the back of the record was this Magnavox blonde mono uh, hi-fi set, they used to call them. And uh, they made those in the mid-50s. So my parents bought one. They were young. And the first thing they bought to play on it was this album by Fats Domino. And I loved that record. And then they brought home uh, some singles like Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, Elvis and Ricky Nelson and all this stuff, right? And this music had a profound impact on me to the point where I started banging my head against the walls and (laughs) I was in Sunday school at church and they'd have to call my dad out of the main service to come and discipline me because I was sitting there singing, you know, uh, boogie woogie bass lines and so on. It scared my parents a lot because they thought, what have we done? You know, now we've corrupted our son with the devil's music. It became kind of this civil war in the house from the time I was three until pretty much all the way through college because they wanted me to play music in church, you know, but they didn't want me out in the bars, you know, becoming a drunk. They used to say, well, the guitar's fine, but you know, you, you need something to fall back on, you know, all the classic lines that parents give their kids when they want to be a professional musician. <laughs> but it was a musical family because my grandmother played organ for the church for 50 years. And so did my mother and my aunt. All my aunties played, and we had other members of the family that were professional musicians. So it really wasn't if, it was when. It's like once I realized that this was all I cared about, I had to fight my way through to make it my career or ministry or whatever. I think as time was moving forward in my teens and late teens, I also had this growing idea in the back of my head that I wanted to evangelize the world with my music. I don't know where that came from because it wasn't preached at me or anything like that. It was just something that was in my, in my head and heart to do, but I didn't really know what that meant. 
but I kept listening to the radio from the time I was a toddler all the way through. And so going back that far from, say, 1957 onward, there's so much music that I soaked in. And then I had an aunt that went through a thing where she got rid of all her records, you know. So for some reason, she gave me all those records. And inside those were not only rock and roll, but there was jazz. And there was uh, what they now call bachelor pad music, which at the time in the late 50s, early 60s was sort of this exotica tiki room kind of stuff, you know, with jungle sounds and vibraphones and so on. I was like a sponge just absorbing all of this stuff. So when I was about nine, my mother said, would you like to take guitar lessons from your cousin Richard? And I said, would I, would I, right? So my first lesson was in February of 1964. That was the same time period that the Beatles landed at JFK. And the world was never the same after that. My mother brought home Meet the Beatles. She bought it at a grocery store and she said, look at them, aren't they cute? And I said, let me have that. So I put it on my little kitty record player and played it through once, played it through again and decided I liked it. And so that started a whole new thing because I was learning guitar at the same time as everyone was picking up a guitar at that time because of the Beatles. And after that came the Rolling Stones and Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead and on and on it went. So I just kept learning, kept putting it in me. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I'd hear the Almond Brothers and I'd want a solo like Dickie Betts and Dwayne Allman. And then and then I heard Yes and Genesis and all those prog bands, they call yeah. them now. But back then it was just considered really it's just symphonic progressive rock and i think that kind of blew my mind i went and saw them in concert and i saw steve howe play guitar like nothing i'd ever seen and i He's thought so great so yeah great. it was really inspiring and i thought well i'm hearing elements of things that i already know like les paul and the 50 stuff but then he's got jazz influences he's got classical and it, it felt like he was from mars I just wouldn't stop. I just kept trying to learn all of that stuff. So I kept progressing on the instrument until Van Halen, because that came out in 77. When I heard Eddie, I just went, all right, that's it. <laughs> I, I don't want to learn how to do that. that. Forget it. I'm stopping on guitar and I'm going to concentrate on something else. And that was songwriting, because yeah. I realized that, you know, there's a million great guitarists, which is kind of ironic considering how difficult it is at least initially the mm-hmm. first year, you know, your fingers get sore and uh, it's hard to form the chords. And I, I struggle with that a lot, but I eventually, you know, mastered it enough to where uh, I could get around on it and do the kind of music I liked. But I started to listen to songwriters like Randy Newman, the guys in the Eagles, even though I wasn't really a big Eagles fan, the songwriting was fantastic. And right, Paul, right. Paul Simon, and then I, and then Jimmy Webb, who I, who was my favorite for a long time uh, until, yeah. until I discovered Leonard Cohen. It's like, I knew about Leonard Cohen's music, but it would have a, a greater impact on me later in life. But mm-hmm. I felt like Jimmy Webb was the best because, you know, he wrote, uh, you know, uh, Wichita, Wichita Lineman and, and, and mm-hmm. uh, by the time I get to Phoenix and a lot of songs that I was a huge Art Garfunkel fan and, and Art Garfunkel recorded a lot of Jimmy Webb tunes and the deeper I he got did. into it. Yeah. The more I realized that, okay, the craft of songwriting, uh, you can look at it a lot of different ways. I mean, a lot of popular rock songs aren't great songwriting. They, they're just catchy and the lyrics mm-hmm. kind of work. But if you look at pieces like Jimmy Webb, like, you know, if these walls could talk or, mm-hmm. uh, um, oh my gosh, I could go down the list. There's so many of them. And I went, that's the kind of songwriting I want to do because the lyrics are amazing. Uh, these songs are built to last. And if I could start, you know, set that as my goal, maybe I just might have standards higher than the average. So I I hooked up with a friend of mine from college who wrote a lot of songs and he would write about a hundred songs. And out of those, maybe two or three were really great. And I, and because I'd always get stuck, I'd get there and I'd write one line and I'd be such a perfectionist. I'd work on it for two years and never get anywhere. And he said, look, it's just a song, just finish it because you might be able to steal lines from it on the next song you write don't get precious with it just write 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 every day write 100 songs and you know you might get lucky like me and you get two or three good ones so eventually he and I started collaborating it wasn't long before we had a little band going with some other friends of his and I was uh, really really excited 
because this was the first time I had a working sort of relationship with another songwriter. I was singing with guys that sang great and played great and we were well on our way. But my, that goal that I had mentioned to you about wanting to evangelize the world mm-hmm. <laughs> had fallen way behind. I had sort of let all of my spiritual life sort of fall by the wayside. It wasn't long before I was just fully indulging myself in, in the pleasures of life, as it were. Any thoughts about God or, uh, you know, wanting to put God first in my life or anything like that, that was just pushed aside. But in the back of my mind, it remained. It's like I kept thinking, wait a minute, I can't. I'm going further and further away from what my true goal is, you know, and I was finding it very difficult because when you're 17, 18, 19 through about 23, that those are the years when you're really testing the waters, you're testing your limits, you're finding out who you are as a person, how you fit into the world. And I'd been raised in church in a very sort of uh, I don't know about sheltered, but it was, it was an environment that was very different from school world in a lot of ways. You know, on the one hand, I was in school and the world of rock and roll and music and all the things I was into. And then I'd be at church in this totally evangelical other environment. Eventually, it all kind of caught up with me because some things transpired in, in my life as I was working with all this songwriter and all these guys that pointed my attention back towards my faith and towards the things I truly believed deep down. And without going into too much detail, because it's really beyond the scope of this, this interview, but let's just say that God got my attention in an extremely dramatic way that led me to a church in Sacramento, which I I was, all of this stuff was happening in San Jose, Silicon Valley. That's where I was born and raised. But when I had my sort of, you know, encounter with God and became on a mission from God, if it will, if you, if you will, the directive was towards this church that I kind of knew about. It was called Warehouse Ministries. It was in Sacramento. And I'd known the people that, that ran it. Basically, what they had was an evangelical church that was built around the arts, specifically music, uh, all, all art, but mostly music, bands and musicians and so on. I went up there and started hanging out and it wasn't long before I moved up there and became part of their uh, operation. It was at that point that I invited Steve Griffith, who was a childhood pal, Mm -hmm. Steve Griffith from the band Vector. I called him and I said, man, you got to come up here and check out what's going on, man. There's all kinds of great musicians. We got a recording studio going. I, I started producing this radio show called Rock and Religion. And that thing had started as sort of a uh, interview show with contemporary Christian music artists. But when I arrived on the scene, they were impressed by my encyclopedic knowledge of rock music and the history of rock music. And they said, what we really want to do now is get away from all these CCM artists. It's becoming boring and we've covered just about everyone. So we shifted the emphasis of the show. And this thing was syndicated all over the United States and the world. I mean, they had over 350 stations here in the United States. Plus, they were on Voice of America. They were on uh, Armed Forces Radio. So this was a worldwide thing and it had a huge throw. And the reason why was because the quality was really, really good because at that time, the FCC required there to be a certain amount of religious programming on every radio station. So our show sounded like the programming that was going on normally. It sounded so much better that they were more than happy to run our show. So we kind of had carte blanche. We could do whatever we wanted. So we started doing uh, shows about the Rolling Stones, the Doors. We got interviews with a lot of these artists. And I was just in hog heaven because now I was getting to meet some of my heroes, except I was behind the microphone, you know, recording the interviews. and (laughs) Kind of like this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Imagine what it was like to go up to Nevada or or someplace up there and and have Jerry Garcia walk into the living room. You're interviewing him or, or recording the interview. It was a wonderful experience. I learned a lot and they moved me up from just being a researcher to producer to eventually announcer. I was in the vanguard of something that was super cool. But what happened was that then the FCC deregulated religious programming. And at that point, we lost half our stations overnight. 
So that was a big blow. But by that point, we were all getting really busy in the studio. When I had first arrived at this warehouse ministries place, they approached me about forming a band. They said, you know, we do these weekly concerts every week. They would have these sort of CCM artists come through town and they'd put on a concert and then they'd, you know, the pastor would get up and give a big sermon and all that at the end. And they said, we want to have a band that kind of represents what we're doing here to go around to play at schools and colleges and stuff like that. Would you be interested in doing that? And I said, the only caveat is it's got to be good. I don't want to be in some churchy band going up there playing cornball stuff. I said, I want I want us to have our own head musically. We write the tunes or we, we pick the tunes. We do what we want. And they said, you got it. So they threw together what became the original 77s. We called it the Scratch Band. Nice. And this was... 1979, like okay, yeah. the fall of 79. Uh, right. Jimmy Abeg was supposed to be in the band, but he was busy. I don't know what happened. So it ended up being myself, Mark Proctor, Mark Toodle, and Jan Eric. And that was the group that eventually, after four years of slogging it out at high schools, they said, well, you're good enough now to make a record, so let's get in the studio. And we sort of put together that first album, um, Ping Pong Over the Abyss. And they, at this point, they were friendly with this guy named Stephen Souls, who was part of Bob Dylan's Rolling thunder review he was in a group called the alpha band with t-bone burnett and wow. david mansfield and eventually t-bone started showing up uh, david mansfield started showing up and with them came a whole plethora of other great musicians coming to do these concerts at the church so once it shifted away from ccm artists we started having people like roger mcguinn philip bailey from earth wind and fire it was really really cool if I count right, you the 77s, you guys have about 16 studio albums, and then you guys were label mates with you too. How did that come about? How did you guys get signed with Island Records? Well, we didn't actually get signed with Island Records. We'd made our first two albums, that ping pong album, All Fall Down. The ping pong one was with Word Records, and they gave us our own imprint, which we named Exit Records, which I came up with. Thank you very much. So we did that first one for Word, and then the second one, I think, was still Word, but they were reaching out for more secular distribution through A&M because they'd gotten a hit with Amy Grant. So those secular doors were opening for us gradually. But the problem was, is that every time we would get that deal the way we wanted it, when that album would arrive at, at a record store, it had the WR word record catalog number. So automatically the employees would rack those in the gospel section. So here we were making these, you know, rock albums and we'd have to go dig them out of the gospel section and go put them in the regular section. That eventually changed, but it sort of kind of ruined our whole plan. So yeah, and I... I discovered you guys, it seems like I'm always late to the party. I didn't find you guys until the early 90s. I think, if I remember correctly, I think Sticks and Stones was the yeah. first album that I bought, which is still, honestly, it's my, my favorite album that you guys did. Let's listen to a little bit of Don't This Way, because I love your guitar work in this. Let's play a little clip, and then we'll talk about it more here in a second.
So tell me a little bit about this song. It's, it's, a, it's a great one. Very, very catchy. Awesome guitar work. I love your tone in this. What's you know, any backstory that you have to share with this? Uh, the main body of the song was written by our keyboard player, Mark Tootle. He was going through a period in his marriage where his wife decided she didn't like him anymore. And uh, he was madly in love with his wife and didn't want to lose her. And that's the song was directed at her. Wow. But he, he painted it in a kind of way as... You could take it as someone who's dying. Mm -hmm. In his case, the relationship was dying, but many, many people have latched onto the tune for dying friends or the death of something important to them. So it has a kind of universal appeal. All that guitar stuff at the front and back was something that I put together from a jam. We used to jam a lot and I would record the jams. And I think about 15 minutes into one of these jams, I heard all of that stuff being played. Wow. And I'm going, oh my gosh, that's beautiful listen it to is. that and so great articulation I, I took that little piece and just arranged the best of it into this intro and outro for that tune which i think gave it a lot more emotional range than just being thrown in the deep end there is a version of the tune that is just mark Tootle's song doesn't have any of that beginning or ending and it's really great but there's something about setting the tone for that somber mood that i mm. think gets the listener a little bit deeper into that lyric it was You're... a good example of a full band composition in a way where you know you've got one guy who's the main songwriter kind of bringing the tune in but then the rest of the band contributes this other stuff which expands it so uh, yeah we were on all four cylinders on that one it's a, and it's a great album and that's where you know Probably you guys had your biggest hit with the lust of flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. Let's listen to a little bit of that song and we'll talk about it on the other side. Well, I feel like I have to feel something good all of the time. With most of life, I cannot deal but a good feeling I can't feel, even though it may not be real. And if a person, place, or a thing can deliver, I will quiver with delight. But will it last me for all my life, or just one more lonely night? The lust, the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life drain the got some good radio play with this what can you tell us about that song yeah uh well there was one radio station up in eugene oregon that you know because it did come out on island records they heard that song and just thought it was great and, and it got to number one in a college town and they brought us to town and we had a big rock show and thought we were rock stars for a minute but unfortunately we weren't able to duplicate that success nationwide because you had asked me about the island records contract 
And what we didn't know at the time was that all we had with them was a what they call a P and D deal, which means pressing and distribution. Essentially, what they did for us was the same thing that Word Records had done for us previously, which was they take you on as an independent. They give you all of their machinery, their publicity people, the film people, press, but basically you're on your own. You are responsible for carrying the weight of the record. They don't really have any skin in it. So that means that the record comes out and basically just dies, you know, unless you have a real strong sort of movement going in those days, it would have been college radio and independent promotion. We would have had to have hired an independent promoter to get that record hitting and the band would need to be touring relentlessly. And it's, it's a lot of work. Plus Island had their hands full with U2. I mean, U2 was bigger than the label. They outgrew the label because all Island really was, was a a boutique label. It was part of the uh, Atco Warner's conglomeration. And Chris Blackwell had had that label for years and, and had a lot of success with it, but no one could have predicted that U2 would become the worldwide phenomenon that they were. So by the time they put out the Joshua Tree, they needed their entire staff engaged to keep that record afloat. And uh, let's say that Joshua Tree had been on uh, CBS, like Columbia or RCA or one of the EMI labels. They would have sold 10 times as many as they did on Island. They could barely keep up with it. So when our little record came out a week after Joshua Tree, there was no way that <laughs> there, was, there wasn't really anyone there. They all left the office. They were hanging out with U2, trying to keep up with you know their tour and everything. And uh, we even hired uh, Blue Oyster Cult's management to... Uh, book a whistle stop radio tour and they couldn't do anything they did they couldn't get any support from island and then eventually we found out that what we actually had was that press and distribution deal we weren't signed directly so there was a lot of bloodshed over that we were very deflated of course Mm -hmm. you know we thought we were on our way to the big time but even our favorite band the comsat angels they put their album out at the same time and their album died too and it was a great record. It was way better than our record. <laughs> Maybe not quite as commercial, but a much better production. And there was just no way we were going to win. So we started over in 87, 88. We wrote a whole bunch of new songs. And all the stuff that's on Sticks and Stones was us doing demos to try to get another record deal. We started doing showcases down at the Roxy in Hollywood. Um, we had big radio down there, a lot of promotion. All the record labels came out. They liked the band, but they didn't hear that one song, you know, particularly in those days. I mean, the business has changed a lot since then. This, you know, this is over 30 years ago. At that time, and for a long time, anytime you have a record deal, the best way for a record company to get behind you is to have a song that breaks out mm-hmm. so that all of radio is playing it all at one time. And once you become associated with that song, even if it's a minor hit, then it's easy for record labels to begin promoting you along those lines and it makes their job easy rather than them having to try to force radio to play something that they think might work. For whatever reason, there was nothing they were hearing us do in our live show that led them to believe that we had that song, you know, and they got to hear the lust. They got to hear do it for love, all that stuff. For whatever reason, it wasn't happening. And, you know, we had a little bit of an image problem because on the one hand, we were recording these melodic, catchy pop tunes, but on stage, we were this real driving, intense sort of doorsy Zeppelin bluesy kind of thing. My hairdo was just some out to lunch thing that didn't even relate to any of that. So it was all over the place. I would say that the 77s were a hard band to market because it was kind of a catch all thing. There wasn't any one flavor or one thing you could grab a hold of, you know. Yeah. If you look at the songs that you've created, it's it's actually it's it's a really impressive body of work. You have some straight ahead rock, alternative rock, you've got some blues, really some 80s pop, things that are more folky in, in some cases and then it, it sounds like a lot of that comes from your wide musical taste and probably that of the others that were in the band and writing with you at the time I would imagine that would make it hard for you know a, a label to say oh, how do we market these guys there's not one sound that really identifies them which I think is a blessing but I could see how it also would be a curse when you're trying to gain some traction Yes, everything you said is absolutely true. I couldn't have said it better. What I wish would have happened 
is that when we were doing the island record, they gave us access to any producer we wanted. And we contacted everybody. I mean, everyone from Dave Edmonds, who was really hot at the time, to Johnny Marr, to uh, T-Bone Burnett. And T-Bone liked the project, but he was too busy. If we had had T-Bone come in at the time and work with us, I think he could have gotten to the essence of what, what we should have focused on. Let's Agreed. He would have way. shaped you guys into... A, co- uh, a pretty cohesive well, sound. Well, yeah, that would... he would start asking me questions like, you know, you need to go back to what you were thinking about when you wrote this song, you know, and get into that frame of mind because that's the place that's going to sort of inform the rest of what you're doing. You know, of course, here I am sitting now, 30 plus years hindsight, because now I understand these things a lot more than I did when I was younger. We were given so much freedom. We just did, did whatever the hell we wanted. We didn't care. You know, We didn't have someone sitting on us going, no, take those 30 ideas and boil it down to one or two and really focus that. Focus your look. Focus your attitude. We just had total freedom and we just figured it doesn't matter anyway. No one cares. So we're just going to do whatever the heck we want to do. You know, Mark Tootle writes a pop song like, no, well, sure, let's do that. I'd write a blues tune. Yeah, why not? We just threw it all in. We thought we were the Beatles on the White Album, you know, <laughs> and, which I'm very fond of that kind of thing. And of so course. are our fans. But sure. when you're first starting out, that's a really, really difficult place to come from. You know? I could see that. And then as you gain success, then you can do what yeah. the Beatles did and vary your sound. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting that we were talking about this because when I look at you know, one of the things you have done to stay busy during this whole Corona thing, coronavirus, are these Corona spheres that you and Bruce have been doing. And if you look at the songs that you guys are playing, I mean, there is everything from Nat Cole to, you know, your own material to Zeppelin to, I mean, it's really a wide variety. And so really that that's continued. And I think it, that's your musical taste driving what you, what you love. And I, I think you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's it's one of the beauties of what you guys have done. Well, that show kind of peels back the onion in a, in a big way. We didn't intend to do that, but now it's we're coming up on show 96, which we'll be doing in that cold song this weekend, ironically. But in the course of those, you know, we have people that sort of keep track of all this and they they make databases of all our songs. And they've informed me that we have we're now up to almost 700 unique songs. Oh, no wonder I'm so tired, you know? <laughs> It's exhausting to think of it, but you're right. It's like growing up during the time when we did, and then I played in top 40 bands for years. And so when you're in a top 40 band, you have to turn your material all the time. You're doing a combination of what's popular at the moment of maybe a few originals and also the songs that you want to do. And it requires you to be very flexible, to be very versatile. I've had to accept the fact that I wasn't going to be a big rock star or anything like that, that I was going to, to serve the music, serve other people and do my best to inspire people. And, you know, consequently behind the scenes, I feel like I've gotten a lot of response over the years, first in letters and now, you know, emails and Mm -hmm. messages on Facebook that people have told me that this stuff really means something to them or, or it changed their life or, Absolutely. It helped them through a difficult time. And I mean, you can't really put a price on that kind of thing. So yeah. I've had to readjust my uh, priorities and my childhood dreams to something that's, that is a little bit more profound and satisfying, which is, well, you know, you're just playing a role in moving this music forward and actually having it be something that's greater than just entertainment. I think of something that, that our mutual friend Steve Hindelong says about their band, The Choir, they haven't sewed widely, but they've sewn deeply. That's a that really great way to put it. It is. It is. Now let's let's jump ahead a bit. I remember being in a music store, nineteen ninety two, and looking over and seeing a CD with a group titled "The Lost Dogs." And I walked right by. I'm like, "What?" And I literally, I was there with a buddy of mine, Aaron Sohegan, and I said, "What kind of name is that?" Well, he popped it in and started listening to it on, on his headphones. And he's like, dude, this is Derry singing. I'm like, wait, what are you talking about? So I went and listened to the CD and have loved the, the Lost Dogs ever since. How? So obviously, so for those who don't know the Lost Dogs, it's, it's you, obviously, from 77s and so on. Derry Doherty from the choir, Gene Eugene from Adam again, and Terry Scott Taylor from Daniel Amos and Swirling Eddies. 
How did the Lost Dogs start? Well, that was in the wake of that Traveling Wilburys group that, you know, George Harrison and Tom Petty, Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison, and, uh, oh God, the guy from ELO. We always you know. forget the other guy's name. Yeah, ELO. <laughs> I can, I can um, curly hair. Jim, Jeff, Jeff Lynn. Jeff Lynn. They did something that almost never works, which is you put five legendary people together in a studio. You know, you make up a band name and you do a record and usually it, it's horrible and it flops, right? Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, and I think Jeff Lynn played a huge role in making it a success only because his production style was so good and so solid. They'd already, I think, had success with George Harrison's Cloud Nine record. Uh, Jeff Lynn was coming into his own as producer for other artists at the time, and he had a really commanding sound. All the songs were great. They broke up all the songs with different guys taking lead vocals. Mm -hmm. And it was a fun record, and it did really well. So, so great. Depending on who you ask, you know, there was Ojo Taylor and Gene Eugene. I got phone calls from both of those guys. I don't remember who the first one was, but I think it might have been Joey. And he says, we're thinking of putting together this uh, Christian traveling Wilburys thing. And I go, oh, brother, that's going to sink like a, you know, torpedo. And he says, no, you know, it might be fun. You know, we're thinking of and, and Joey was saying, well, it's going to be me and you and maybe Terry Taylor and maybe Derry Doherty. And I'm thinking wow, that's a weird mix of people, you know, and, <laughs> you know, I didn't really pay that much attention to those guys and their bands. I knew they were good, but I wasn't like, you know, I didn't follow them. So I kind of forgot all about it. And then six months later, I get a call from Gene Eugene and he says, yeah, we're still thinking about this Wilburys thing, but I don't think we want Joe in it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And I'm going, oh, really? So, wow. you know, that's hotly contested by Joe. But we don't have Gene any around anymore to really, you know, argue about it. So right, I'm just right. going to say that they both came up with the idea. And somehow Joey found himself ousted. And, you know, airline tickets were booked. I, I went down there and I just said, you got to get me to a donut shop. You know, I got to have some donuts. So they took me to a donut shop and, and, you know, I made Terry come in and help me pick, you know, and he's just looking at me like, this guy's crazy. I guess that's what keeps him going is a bunch of donuts, you know. <laughs> But Terry and I eventually discovered that we had an affinity for all the, a lot of the same music growing up. He'd lived in San Jose for several years. There was a lot of sort of cross-pollination. And Derry, of course, was thoroughly pleasant. And Gene, I'd never met anybody like Gene Eugene. Yeah. It, was, it was like meeting an actor from a, an old Bowery Boys movie or Three Stooges or, or Abbott and Costello. He seemed like a little guy that was transported in a time machine from the 1930s or 40s. It was really wild working with these guys. We just all sat around in a circle and we brought in tunes. You know, everyone had a snippet of a tune or a half-written song. And I found some orphan songs that I'd had laying around that either got rejected by 77s or never got finished. And we just sat there with a drum machine and strummed acoustic guitars to this solid beat. Eventually, we got Burley Drummond from Ambrosia to come in and play the drums. And we started doing the vocals. And before you know, there was a record. And that's a great record. Scenic Routes is still one of my absolute favorites. Now, this was right around the time that REM's album Automatic for the People came out. And it really kind of started an acoustic revolution in music. Did, was that influential on you guys at the time? I love that? that record, but I wasn't thinking about anything in particular. We, were, we did start to notice that some of the songs we were picking had a bluegrass feel or a folky feel. There was mm -hmm. a blues feel. There was a, an Americana thing. Which Americana. Sure. That term hadn't been used yet. So for the first time in my life, we were either right on the curve or ahead of the curve a little bit. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, when this record came out, people called it country in our little sort of CCM, you know, alternative world. And people saw the Lost Dogs as kind of a comic event because we were funny on stage. We ribbed each other and teased each other. And I think the combination of comedy and that country moniker took many, many years to undo because a lot of people just don't like country music. We got labeled as such, and it would take a while, but we just stayed together because that record was so much fun to make. It was successful. It sold well. So we did another one, which the second one, Little Red Riding Hood, that to me is just like magnum opus or whatever, you know. It's a brilliant, brilliant. I mean, truly, I, I don't use that word for many albums, but that is such an incredible album. In yeah, fact, I'm one of my favorite songs from any band all time, and I, I've mentioned this to you before when you've been in our home, is 
Dunce Cap. Oh yeah. Uh, I, it is that song. That song brings me to tears. Obviously, you know, it's sung by Derry Doherty and Gene Eugene. Gene, of course, is no longer with us. And I think that's one of the reasons that song is so emotional for me. Um, let's listen to a, a little clip of that song. We'll talk about it. I saw you, I knew what I knew That I could be nowhere without you Working on songs till my fingers were blue Determined you'll know they're without And if I could fly And if you would stay For a little while And I'm on Sandbox the man on the moon He's dancing like there's no tomorrow Nails on the chalkboard all clean up my room The corner piece sitting in my soul But I think I could fly If you would stay For a little while And I'm all That's your playing guitar playing, and you wrote those guitar lines in there. What what do you remember about about that song? It might have been Terry's song, I think, to start, but then I think Derry got in it a little bit. Maybe Gene did a little bit. So they had this tune, and I didn't think too much of it at the time. But I I was listening to this album by a band called The Swoon. Do you remember that? Those oh, guys. Sure. Yep, got some TVs. And uh, they had a song on there that really was played with a similar guitar figure that I used for Dunce Cap. It was this kind of rolling 6-8 thing. And I was sitting there messing with that. And I married that. Again, I did the same thing as I did with uh, Don't This Way, where I came up with that guitar figure to open and close the song. And it sort of sets this mood. And I remember listening to the song over and over again. There was just something about it. I couldn't stop listening to it. And I was layering my electric guitars. You know, Gina kind of left me alone in the studio. And you know, they were all in the back jesting and so forth. And then Tim Chandler walks in and he sees me just completely. I'm just like staring into space, listening to this. And he calls the guys in to look at me. He says, look at Mike. He says, he's just completely transfixed by this. Mm -hmm. And so we made rough mixes. And I remember listening to it on the way home in the airplane. And I started sobbing, you know, and every time I would listen to it, I'd start crying. And so I I think I eventually called Derry or Terry and I said, I, what is it? What's going on with this song? I said, I can't stop crying. He says, I've kind of had the same reaction. 
And I honestly think that that we were all getting a, a premonition about Gene because mm. if you listen to the lyric, he's talking about, are we almost home? You know, right. and he's, the song is kind of about him. It's a, it's the right time to listen. A liar can learn, you know, Gene was a very tricky guy and, and had a lot of things going on in his life. He was a bunch of different guys, depending on who you were with it at that right. moment. And I remember feeling like when I first, I think on the sessions for the first album, I remember calling Joey up and saying, we got to, you got to stop Gene. He's going to die. And, you know, it wasn't any particular thing. It was just his lifestyle, his whole sort of freewheeling attitude about food, about, I just got the scent of death on him uh, from the beginning. And, and Joey said, what can I do? I said, he's not, you know, he's the captain of his own ship. I can't, there's no way I can tell him what to do. And even if I did, he wouldn't, he wouldn't listen. But then I, I forgot all about that conversation and many, many years went by, but he did eventually pass. All of these things came back to my mind when he did, because I remember those feelings during dunce cap i remember the conversation with joe the way i felt about gene and i just thought this guy's not long so that song i think embodies gene's soul in a way mm. he just wasn't made for these times you know? the lost dogs you guys have uh, recorded nine studio albums oh that's live. crazy isn't it isn't it Is, crazy? yeah yeah they're all great it's been 12 years actually since old angel was released I remember asking Derry about this. Curious what your take is. Any, any chance we'll see a new Lost Dogs album? Um, we talk about it from time to time. A lot Terry's has, got some health issues. Yeah, right? Terry's yeah. had some issues, I guess. But I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, there was a time when there was a an easy way to do it. There was a lot of money flowing in and out of the machinery through whatever Steve or Derry had going. Derry had his own studio in his house. Now we're all really living in four corners. To raise the budget to do it, we'd have to do a Kickstarter and crowdsource it. It may still happen. You know, I never say never. I'm open to it. We've all talked about it. You know, we don't necessarily want to start doing heavy touring again like we did because long after Old Angel came out, we continued to tour almost every summer until we just couldn't do it anymore. It just became so physically difficult. Yeah, plus Old Angel, to me, felt like that was a record that we couldn't really beat. It felt so complete and so encapsulating of, of our experience as a band on the Route 66 and also just as a group. It felt like that was a nice sort of place to, if not break up, at least stop and wait and let it be digested over a long period of time, you know? Yeah. So, and plus all of our other bands start getting busy again. I'm going to go with the idea that there's, there may still be one great album in us. As long as Terry's writing, there's always a great album, you know, because <laughs> he just writes nonstop. And eventually we kind of just sort of let him do the lion's share of writing, which he's always got him. Yeah, he's so, very, uh, very talented. So then we, if we jump forward 2012, you and Derry put out the first Kerosene Halo album, self-titled. Yeah. You guys have released three albums that are just outstanding, beautifully done albums. And, and what I love about those is they're a mix of songs that you and Derry have written, songs that friends of yours have written, and then you've got some covers. Uh, let's listen to the very first song on the very first Kerosene Halo album. Let's listen to a little bit of Rice Paper Wings. That's how she flies in Bright saffron dreams cross Harlequin skies on Rice Paper Wings She lasses the How she flies in bright saffron dreams across harlequin skies on rice paper wings. Thieves here to steal her thunder, crowding her world of wonder. I fear they've got. That is such a beautiful song. It's it's really the opening statement of the group you guys put together. Who who wrote that one? Terry Taylor wrote that. 
I guess he recorded with DA. I can't remember if it was DA or solo, but Terry is really good at writing for a project. So when he knew that me and Derry were going to do this, he purposely put that song and the closing song, he bookends the album, the one, and so it goes, he arranged those for us in, for that setting. And they, they are so perfect and so beautiful. And that's what I really love about Terry is that, you know, he can do what's appropriate for whatever project he's working in. He, he understands the nuances of the folk duo versus a band. In a sense, he really gave us, you know, his blessing and sort of a, he christened the boat in, other, in, in a way, you know. <laughs> um, I love that record. That first record is really sweet. Uh, the oh, second so one, uh, House on Fire, is, it would be hard for us to do a better record than that. I'm very proud of that record. Mm -hmm. But ironically, the one that got the most attention was the companion project. That record, Live Simple, was done very quickly on the fly, just the two of us with guitars. It was recorded fast, mixed fast. But we got a, a great, great album design and photo photography on there. And the record has such a vibe that that one ended up becoming way more popular. And the House on Fire just kind of, I believe, has been overlooked. <laughs> so, so you have toured with the choir as their bass player. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had Steve and Derry on my podcast not long ago. Now, I'm not one to cause drama or, or stir up feuds, but... Here's what they had to say about some of your touring life habits. Well, and Steve and I are all about the small little, we love the mom and pop joints. Oh, you know, too. we'll take a risk driving down the road and you see some little thing. Rose, Mike Rowe, when he's with us, he's all, he's not like that. He's uh -huh. real boring. He has to have the same, same, same. He has to have Starbucks, Starbucks. and he has to have uh, Panera. Cracker Barrel. Cracker Barrel has to be a chain. No. <laughs> <laughs> that is such that is so unfair but that's what they had to say so is is there any and is there any truth to this mike or do you need to set the record straight here it's partially true um i do like those chains uh well starbucks i think is just on the road that saves all of our bacon because i i get, I get a decent cup of coffee both steve and i can get oatmeal and something healthy and you, you don't have to be there for a long time i staunchly defend the starbucks stop they are a little bit more adventurous to want to go into those one of a kind mom and pops and take a chance, you know, but I like doing that too. And I've been with them to a lot of those. Let's talk Michael Rose solo work here. So you are approaching 20 studio albums. If by my count, it's a really impressive body of work. And I, I remember when your album and a phrase or two came out, which is like 2014 or so I was working here in my home office. I had it rolling in the background and the Michael Bat composition, Bright Eyes, comes on, which, of course, was made famous by Art Garfunkel. And I remember being so confused, wondering how the album switched to Art Garfunkel. And I, so I looked up to put your album back on, and it was your album. In my opinion, Artie has one of the sweetest and most beautiful voices ever given to a man. Mm -hmm. And you sound just like him on the album. Let's play a little bit of it so people can hear what we're talking about. Is it a kind of dream Floating out on the tide Following the river of death downstream Oh, is it a dream There's a fog along the horizon a strange glow in the sky And nobody seems to know where you go And what does it mean? Oh, oh is it a dream? Bright eyes burning like fire So there is a reason 
you sang this song. Tell us about that. I remember you telling a little bit of a story about why you sang this. I had that record by Art Garfunkel, Bright Eyes, which is the uh, Watership Down. Some you, you might remember that uh, animated film from the late 70s. Uh, the song Bright Eyes was the, I think, climax of the film. And Art Garfunkel recorded it for one of his albums. I always loved it. Well, then somebody, I don't know who first noticed this, but we have a fan named Mike Beidler. He and I got to talking and I think somebody had pointed out that Michael W. Smith's song, uh, Never Been Unloved, had a striking resemblance to Bright Eyes. And I thought, wouldn't it be real sneaky to do a medley of the two songs and record it? When I did that record, all that was was a Kickstarter thing where, like Live Simple by Kerosene Halo, where people request songs to do and you record their requests. So Beidler and I got in on this thing together and he said, all right, I'm going to request that you do Smitty's tune and then marry it to Bright Eyes. And I said, you got it. So I did it. It was incredibly difficult to sing. A lot of what you hear is the the miracle of modern recording and studio wizardry, but somehow I managed to get the performance the the way I wanted it. The way you captured the tone and timbre of Art's voice is pretty incredible. And that is, I have never heard anyone say, I've seen him live uh, a few times, both with Simon Garfunkel and Solo. And he just, you know, the tone of his voice is so yeah, beautiful, it's beautiful and unique. And you well, captured that really well. It's, well, it's I've been working impressive. on my Art Garfunkel uh, imitation since the 70s. So I've had a long, a lot of practice because I don't know if you ever do this, if you ever pause and take stock of where you are, but in your body of work between the 77s, your solo work, Lost Dogs, Kerosene Halo, I count over 50 albums that you've recorded. What is it like for you now where you are to kind of take stock and look back at, at where you've been? I, I don't know. I don't really do that. I mean, typically, you know, you're caught up with what you're doing in the moment and so much of this has been economy driven producing so much work a lot of times had to do with making rent as much as it did making an artistic statement you know mm. <laughs> you don't often have the luxury of being able to sit and go gee i think i'll write this great set of songs now i mean i some people do that i've become a lot more uh, passive as i've gotten older and maybe now that you say i've done 50 or 60 albums or whatever it is maybe that's why i'm just not burned out, but maybe not quite as motivated. No, I'm not as driven. You know, it's like I'd rather sit around and read or play with my dog or go to the park. You know, it's like to me, doing these things is very, very hard work. So I need a usually a project or something that has a, uh, a goal. Well, I think we all have different things that motivate us. So just kind of wrapping up our time here a little bit. So what is next for Michael Rowe? Well, about eight years ago, maybe nine years ago, 77 started recording in earnest songs, basic tracks. We did a lot of stuff over over about an 18-month period. And then we sort of got busy and abandoned them for other things. And I just didn't want to work on it. I just thought this is too much pressure. It's it's been too long since we've done an album. People are going to judge us, you know, on our best work. And I just I just didn't want to face it. Well, both Mark and Bruce are very determined to get the stuff out. And it's great stuff. That's probably going to be my number one priority as far as recording and composing for the next, you know, however long it takes. I'm hoping to tour with the choir again as soon as we can get out there safely. 77's tours are incredibly difficult for me, but I do hope that we get to play again some way. Uh, Lost Dogs touring, I don't want to do that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a show here and there, you know, be nice. Let's talk about how people can support you. So your website, michaelroe.com, is that the best place? Well, that's the place to get my solo albums. I have a Bandcamp page there. We also have www.77s.com. That's 77s.com. Plus there you've got DVDs, you've got T-shirts, all kinds of, you know, bric-a-brac. So uh, there's also www.kerosenehalo.net. That's where you can get the stuff that me and Derry did. And then there's www.thelostdogs.com. There is a Bandcamp store there. And then to get all the latest material from what 77s and Vector and uh, Bruce and I are doing, that is www.mezzomusiclimited, which is M-E-Z-Z-O-M-U-S-I-C-L-T-D, 
Rockstar.com. And there you will find our latest album that we've done, a hymn show, which is a collection of hymns that we've been doing on the Coronasphere show. And Mark Harmon's on there too. So it is, it is a quasi 77s album, but it's not our next big album. It's just something that we all worked on together. Sure. And I'll put all of those uh, links in the description of the podcast so everybody can just click on those. Excellent. I started something with in my last podcast called One Random Question, and it's where I ask a question that's probably pretty worthless. And so here is my question for you. If you could take the stage with one artist, one singer, who would that be? Oh my gosh. For right now in this moment, if I could, it would be Bill Evans playing piano. Bill's been dead for, for 42 years, but he did some albums with Tony Bennett <clears throat> singing. And I would love to learn, you know, some of those standards, not that I have the voice to do them, but I'd sing them any way I could to just stand there at Carnegie Hall with Bill Evans playing behind me and me singing. Oh, my God, you could shoot me right there and bury me with that photograph of that event. I'd be happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's I know it's kind of a left field answered you know everyone most people i think would say paul mccartney or which i think he might be the second one only because you know the two of us could get acoustic guitars and sing i love that what a great choice very very <clears throat> unique well mike thank you for joining me i have thoroughly enjoyed our chat and for everyone listening if you've enjoyed this podcast please consider following and subscribing or leaving a review or throwing some stars our way and we will see you next time on the next journey to the stage that's a wrap. Cool. <laughs>